This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Game Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rudolf Inderst, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Jason C. Cash, one of the editors of The World of Final Fantasy VII, Essays on the Game and Its Legacy from 2023. The publisher is McFarland. Before we jump right in, though, I want to let you know that if you like our show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the audio platform of your choice. Also, feel free to share this episode with your friends or wherever you see fit. And now, back to the show. Final Fantasy VII altered the course of video game history when it was released in 1997 on Sony's PlayStation system. It converted the Japanese role-playing game into an international gaming standard with enhanced gameplay, spectacular cutscenes, and a vast narrative involving an iconic cast. In the decades after its release, the Final Fantasy VII franchise has grown to encompass a number of video game sequels, prequels, a feature-length film, a novel, and a multi-volume remake series. This volume, the first edited collection of essays devoted only to the world of Final Fantasy VII, blends scholarly rigor with fan passion in order to identify the elements that keep Final Fantasy VII current and exciting for players. So I think it is quite understandable why I'm so excited today. Jason, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. Uh, I'm very excited to be here and sort of share the work that we've been doing for the last few years with everyone. So um, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Well, I'm currently an associate professor at SUNY Delhi in upstate New York. Um, I teach composition, literature, and film. Sometimes I also teach courses like environmental and social justice in our sustainability program. Uh, My background is a little bit circuitous. I am not by training a game studies scholar. Uh, My PhD is in literature. Um, So to this day, I still feel a little bit like an interloper. Um, So as I mentioned, my PhD is in literature, and I spent most of my doctoral program thinking about how Irish fiction of the 20th century complicated, restrictive ideas of nationalism uh, with what Kwame Anthony Appiah calls partial cosmopolitanism. So basically, I'm really interested in the way that created texts speak to, shape, reflect 
the political and social circumstances that affect people in their everyday lives. And I was at a popular culture conference presenting um, on a U2 song called The Troubles, walked into a game studies panel that happened to have a paper on Final Fantasy VII, and decided that I wanted to do that uh, with the same set of tools that I had developed in my um, you know, doctoral studies. And so from there, I started working on things like Metal Gear Solid, God of War, The Witcher, through lenses like post-colonialism and feminism. Um, and I've been able to sort of adapt my perspective and my interests to a very different, to a different world. And it's been really enriching and rewarding. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's nice to, uh, to be here and to be participating in this world. Great. Now, of course, uh, we have to check for your Ludo Street credibility then. Please tell us what's your favorite game and the one or even the ones uh, you're playing right now. All right, so this is going to be, I'll give you the stock answer that I give my students when they ask me this first. Um, if I had to choose a single game, um, for the longest time, I would have said A Legend of Zelda um, or The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past. And I would still say that, although the original Dark Souls is close. Um, my favorite game franchises, however, which probably mean more to me than any individual title, are Castlevania and Final Fantasy. Um, for a while, I would have said that my favorite Final Fantasy title was Seven, and I think that's probably still the case. It's certainly the most important one in my, my life so far. Um, but I have been uh, replaying the entire series, actually, um, over the last year, some with my daughter um, and some by myself. You know, she's been very excited with me working on this book, um, and she is old enough to kind of start being included in some of it. So last summer, we played through Seven, and this is ridiculous, but then we played uh, Remake, Crisis Core, 8, 9, 10, and 15, um, we are currently playing through Final Fantasy XIV, which is a massive undertaking. Um, I'm still in the post-A Realm Reborn content before Heavensward, and everyone tells me that this is the slog and everyone struggles to get through it, but honestly, I think it's some of the most interesting and best writing and world-building I've seen in the series. Um, and my daughter is really enjoying the sort of minion uh, companions and the different mounts that you can get. So I think we'll be working with that for a long time. Um, independently during that time, I also played through the first four pixel remasters of uh, the series as well as 12. So it's been deep dive immersion into the franchise, ironically, after finishing the book. Um, I also last year played Elden Ring like everyone else and replayed Dark Souls. But recently it's it's been virtually nothing but Final Fantasy. Um, I guess one last thought is I, I did complete in the middle of all these playthroughs um, Stranger of Paradise, Final Fantasy Origin, uh, which was you know heavily memed and kind of mocked for all of the uh, content and the trailers. But I found, because um, I'm working on a book chapter, I turned in a draft yesterday on this game, that it might have a more coherent ecological argument than Final Fantasy VII, but very few people will notice it. <laughs> um, but that that's a, that's another story altogether. Um, so I found it to be an amazingly fun game, but it's also the stupidest Final Fantasy. <laughs> yeah. So it's safe to assume that this Final Fantasy won't be your Final Fantasy. <laughs> oh no, but you can expect lots of those puns in future articles. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the essays in your volume offer a broad range of interesting topics indeed 
but before we start our deep dive, please tell our listeners how did you and your co-editor uh, Craig Wilson uh, come to work on the world of Final Fantasy VII in the first place? Well, as I mentioned earlier, I was at a popular culture conference in Albuquerque, New Mexico in 2016. And I went to a panel and I remember there was a paper on L.A. Noir, a paper on tabletop role playing games. But the one that drew me in was a psychoanalytic reading of Final Fantasy VII. Um, see, Eliza Albert Baird was the speaker and she gave a talk on Vincent Valentine and Sephiroth that used analyses of the narrative as well as the ludic elements to sort of make a really coherent and thoughtful argument that would have been similar to the kinds of things that I was, again, used to doing in literary studies. Um, and while I do respect more um, ludic approaches to uh, analyzing games, that was the thing that pulled me in and made me feel like this could be worth doing. Um, and now at the time, she was actually interested in putting together a volume like the one that we did in the end. Uh, but Eliza moved out of academia. And so with her blessing, I talked to Craig and he had been working with McFarland on his own book on video game music. And so he had the connections and sort of helped me get over that initial anxiety of speaking to someone. Um, so I met with uh, Layla Milholland from McFarland. We put together the proposal and, um, you know, that was that was basically it. It was a serendipitous uh, moment. Uh, it's actually interesting because Craig went to graduate school with a former colleague of mine, um, Ken Hayes. We were living in Western Oklahoma. The two of us were one of three. We were three people hired in the English department that year. Um, and the fact that we had that shared connection is probably why I was able to sort of connect with Craig in the first place. So I see this chain of events that had they not played out exactly this way might not have uh, allowed the book to exist. But yeah, it was a happenstance meeting at a conference um, and a shared interest. Shall we start with the, let's say, historical elephant in the room then? Final Fantasy VII was more than just a success for Sony. It also brought an end to Nintendo's reign over third-party developers and gaming in general. True or false? I'm going to go with the hedge answer of true, kind of. Um, I'm still almost exclusively a console-based gamer for a number of reasons. Um, I had the first-generation Xbox, but since then I've been playing exclusively on Nintendo and Sony consoles, as I did during the, the 1990s as well. Um, and so, you know, I saw the influx of third-party support for the PlayStation 1 um, you know, I thought it was interesting, you know, I was too young to really understand the business behind it, but I thought it was interesting that Final Fantasy jumped from the Nintendo consoles to the Sony PlayStation. But I don't think I registered how significant that was at the time. Um, but I think it's interesting in the last few years as the, the, the runaway success of the Nintendo Switch has gotten a different kind of third party support. Um, you know, I have... I have a PlayStation 5 and it's wonderful, but, um, you know, I can play The Witcher or Skyrim or whatever third-party title on the Switch. Granted, it's got to be a dated title, but the portability factor for me far outweighs the performance compromises. So I think that in, in the long run, Nintendo has done just fine with at least some third-party support. Um, but I think in terms of public perception, the the idea of this uh, sort of like divorce of a longstanding partnership was was very real. 
Um, I remember when they were announcing the you know the DLC characters for Super Smash Bros on 3DS and Wii U. And, you know, I can still to this day go back and be amused by reaction videos when people start seeing, you know, Cloud and Final Fantasy VII suddenly showing up on Nintendo after, you know, a 20-year absence. Um, so I think that that, I think that it is true, but I don't think that, um, I, I don't think it was any sort of like permanent damage. And I think that, um, I think that the, the console wars mentality has you know largely migrated over to uh, Microsoft and Sony anyway. Yeah. Altogether, I think um, eleven authors contributed to this volume on run about two hundred and twenty pages. Were there any other academic volumes on Final Fantasy in general released in the last few years for you in order to conceptualize and set up your specific call for papers or call for contributions? So one of the first things that we did when we were putting together the call for papers was to do some bibliographic research. And I found a handful of books that did some academic work with Final Fantasy, um, nothing exclusive to Final Fantasy VII, um, and far fewer results than I would have expected for um, a series as longstanding and uh, you know as narratively rich as Final Fantasy. Um, I mean, I think that the majority of the essays in the two uh, collections that I'm going to reference in a minute definitely do take, you know, a narrative-based approach. Um, so there was Final Fantasy and Philosophy in 2009, published by Blackwell. Um, and that was a good read. A number of the articles in there informed um, several of the chapters in our book. Um, I know I referenced some of them myself. Um, and then there was also... Um, It's not strictly speaking an academic book, but I think the most widely cited book that uh, ended up being in ours um, was third editions, The Legend of Final Fantasy VII. It's not academic in the strictest sense, but it's very it's very thoroughly documented. It has um, a lot of uh, background on the production and development of the game, uh, sort of deep, comprehensive analysis of the compilation of Final Fantasy VII as a whole. Um, so those two books were probably the most, um, in terms of like published volumes, the ones that we saw as being most essential for positioning our proposal, um, because we were doing something different. And then beyond that, it was a matter of looking through individual articles more than books. And there were book chapters and articles kind of all over the place, um, Uh, Rachel Hutchinson's article on uh, nuclear discourse was uh, was really important. Robbie Sykes had one on Earth jurisprudence that you know we we're finding things from textbooks, from uh, academic essay collections, from law journals. Um, it was really not centralized in the way that I expected it to be, which was good for our proposal because we were doing something different. Um, More recently, I think in 2020, I saw that Anthony Bean edited a volume on psychology in the Final Fantasy series. Um, but that came out around the same time that we were putting together the manuscript. We had already started getting drafts. So I don't know. Um, that wasn't a factor in the initial stages of the proposal. But it's something I would actually like to go back and visit because it looks really um, interesting. And it looks relevant for the, the ways that I personally like to think about games. Um, so yeah, there were no individual volumes on Final Fantasy VII and really only one or two on the series as a whole. Um, and I think 
Um, most recently, I saw that there was a book published on the uh, music of Nobu Uematsu, which um, is scholarly in nature, and I think sounds really interesting. But I'm I don't have the background in music, which Craig actually does. He's a vocal performance major before he went into writing and rhetoric. Um, so if he he hasn't read that yet, I'm going to make sure that he he gets his hands on it. Um, so at the end of the day, um, the the structure of the book was informed um, largely by our desire to think about the game from narrative perspective, from the gameplay perspective, which became player experience um, in the formal designation, um, and then legacy, right? Because that's that's the initial the initial impulse for this was something to mark the 25th anniversary of the series, uh, which we moved away from because that would ultimately date the book. Um, but um, yeah, we, we sorted through all those materials and came to gameplay player, or sorry, player experience, narrative and legacy as our, our framing concepts. Yeah, and also while reading your introduction, it became very clear to me that this is also a book for readers who are interested in the let's say, broader cultural connections between the game series and the, uh, air quotes, outside world. How do the single chapters or your single chapters then uh, mirror that effort? Well, I think there's a few different ways to think about that. Um, and I'm going to go back to the, the three-part structure of the book, which was inspired by the three-CD uh, production of the original Final Fantasy VII game. The second disc of the book is the one that's most focused on player experience. Um, so I think that the narrative section of the book and the legacy section of the book are probably where readers would find that element strongest. Um, so for people who come to um, game studies or are interested in Final Fantasy from the perspective of narrative, um, I think that Sescino Brooks Davida's chapter, um, which is the first chapter in the book after the introduction, make some really interesting connections between the characterization of Sephiroth and uh, Frankenstein's monster, as well as Milton's depiction of Satan in Paradise Lost. Uh, Davida spends uh, a lot of time going through not just textual analysis of, of Milton's poem and, and of, the, of the game, but also drawing in um, you know, Jewish mysticism and um, you know, Hebrew scripture and some really interesting things that um, thematically connect ongoing questions about our world with the game. Um, Craig Olson, again, my uh, co-editor, his chapter on, spoiler here, Aerith's death and its cultural influence is also, I think, another interesting example. Um, Again, that's thinking about legacy and influence beyond the scope of, of games and game culture. Um, you know, he's, he's talking about the, the way that fan communities, um, which were sort of in their infancy on the internet at the time that Final Fantasy VII was released, um, gravitated towards this kind of wish fulfillment through um, the resurrection of this character who, for many people, was their first memorable death in a video game. Um, so much that this culture is like bled over into being referenced in, you know, um, things like um, Disney's film Wreck-It Ralph. Um, Disney, apparently, there's a, a lot of people at Disney who love Final Fantasy because I was watching the TV program Owl House with my daughter last night and Cloud's Buster Sword made an appearance. Um, I think additionally, both Carlos Cruz and Kathleen Morrissey's contributions um, in the final chapters of the book um, speak to um, 
sort of legacy and the the world outside of the game cruise is specifically charting the way that characters and motifs from final fantasy 7 reappear in other games um, and morrissey's uh, which connects thematically with some earlier chapters in the book as well uh, looks at the way that um, the game's implications for mental health and well-being can be sort of mapped onto its to its gameplay um, but when i think about it the chapter that i keep coming back to um, was kind of a I've used this word before, a serendipitous addition to the collection. Um, and that's Gregory Jones's chapter um, on um, religion and sort of um, environmental awareness. So when I was presenting a paper on Castlevania at uh, the Popular Culture Association in 2021, we had someone who never turned in a final draft in the book for um, the peer review draft. And I needed to come up with something pretty quickly so that we would have, you know, enough material to send forward. And Greg was in the same panel that I was in. And um, I was mentioning to him before that I was working on this book. And he's like, Oh, I have, I have a chapter completely drafted and ready to go if you want to look at it. And I did and I I loved it. Um, And I think that for me personally, the idea that he was able to uh, take something which regardless of your personal religious convictions, speaking to a game's ability to inspire and to call for you know activism thoughtful ethical engagement with the world awareness of um you know the resources and our impact on the environment uh the things that for me make the game feel relevant were also a big part of the 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 moral and ethical drive behind this essay so i thought that um for me, this was the kind of thing that I wish I could have written. I just didn't have the right, you know, background for. And uh, Greg, being a, a seminary student at the time, was was perfectly informed to do this kind of reading. So, I, yeah, again, I just love the sort of call to action feeling that it produces. Um, and then I guess um, it's kind of interesting because it's counterintuitive to my own chapter because Greg sees the inspiration for um, doing something. And for me, I keep coming back to my own personal frustrations with Final Fantasy VII that after the game spends five or so hours of gameplay time developing a really insightful uh, analysis of environmental injustice, of um, the exploitation under advanced capitalism, of a disregard for the environment and how we uh, utilize na- uh, natural resources. We introduce this cosmic threat in Sephiroth. We introduce this interstellar uh, figure in Genova. And the more grounded, more relatable, more actionable things in the story become secondary. Um, so I liked that uh, Greg, and there are a few other people that did similar things, uh, found something that was more sustained in the game that I had through my own frustrations, not seen as strongly. Um. Well, after your editorial walkthrough, the next question seems to be really obvious to me, which, which essay or which contribution was the most surprising to you then when it first came in as in, wow, I did not even know that somewhere researchers do think about that in particular. (laughs) Well, I wouldn't say I was surprised by the the approaches or the content in the chapters that I was just discussing. Um, and really, I don't know that I could point to um, anything specific that was a new 
lens, a new framework that I hadn't thought about before, but I think it's because we cast such a wide net that I was hoping for that. Um, so it's going to sound kind of like a cop-out answer. Um, having said that, though, um, in Dear Neil Hoke's chapter, which examines the rhetoric of online reactions to Final Fantasy VII Remake, and specifically the combat system, the role that nostalgia plays in mediating our experience of new media. Um, that one was, uh, to be honest, inspirational to me uh, in, some pro- in some projects that I'm working on now. Um, you know, video game culture is deeply admired in nostalgia and uh, hyper reverence for the past. And I think sometimes that can be good and sometimes that can be really problematic. And so I thought that uh, her analysis of you know, online interactions, um, discussing trailers, revealing the new battle system and things like that. I was like, oh, this is a really fascinating way, right? This is not, we're not going to analyze the mechanics of the game themselves. We're going to do a cultural analysis, surveying how people react to it, um, which I, I liked that because it was um, engaging with, fan engagement with the game in a way that I don't think um, many of the other chapters in the book do. So that one stands out to me. Um, I also enjoyed Nick Herzog's chapter. Um, So he looks at the procedural rhetoric of the game and connects it to the environmentalist themes. And again, this is one that challenged me because of my own frustrations with uh, the Sephiroth and Genova stuff. Um, It pushed back against my reading. Um, You know, Herzog basically has this idea that Cloud... Um, And having to accept living with complexity and contradiction um, that a monolithic kind of this is the answer moment um, might not come looking for it might be a deterrent. Um, It's kind of an empowering moment to accept how powerless you are, right? Understanding um, the limitations of, you know, what, what cloud has agency over in the game mirrors the very complex relationship we have with, um, you know, a highly industrialized world and the, the idea that, um, you know, video games and stories in general can provoke and encourage us to think about things doesn't mean that we have to be fully accountable for the answers, right? Sometimes just being made more thoughtful, being made more conscious has a value in and of itself. Um, and the last one that I kind of want to touch on here, uh, Yasheng She's chapter on post-war masculinity in Japan. Uh, this one I, I think was really, really cool because it took something that um, I think people might see sort of at just sort of a, a general level of like the, the different types of masculinity and gender that are performed through these different characters, um, but maps it through a kind of post-colonial reading on Japan and its sort of changing position in the world after World War II. Um, so it, it's uh, this really beautiful combination of post-colonial discourse and psychoanalysis um, that for me was refreshing in the way that it blended critical perspectives and strategies. Well, whenever I have um, editors as guests and not single authors, this next question is, of course, a very tough one because it's like asking about parents, uh, who's your who's your favorite kid? But let's give it a try anyway. So let's assume for a second, I'm your typical, let's say, air quotes, interested reader who has heard about that 
echoes again, famous JRPG series somewhere. To which two or three chapters and authors would you point me for a kickstart then? So I've, I've referenced a lot of the authors already, um, and this is going to be, honestly, it's going to sound like shameless self-promotion, uh, but I think that the introduction and the conclusion, which Craig and I wrote uh, per, uh, respectively, um, would be the ones to look at first, because you know, in the introduction, what I tried to do was to um, you know, contextualize the game within the history of video games, within the history of the franchise, and put it in conversation with the cultural and historical moments in which it was produced and in which it is still being consumed. Um, so it, it has kind of a, a macro level perspective that the more granularly focused chapters um, often don't have. Um, and that's, again, that's by design. Um, and so it's not, it's not saying that you know, like I like my, my introduction more than the book. It's certainly not the case. I think it's just a, an important sort of preface to kind of follow you know, especially for people that are not familiar with the uh, the game and its history. Um, and then I think beyond that, um, the chapters that kind of uh, appeal most broadly would be in the legacy portion of the book at the end. So if you're someone who has, um, you know, identifies as, you know, a player or a games enthusiast um, or something like that, you might have, you might enjoy reading the chapters that focus on, you know, the, the intertextual uh, elements of the game, the influence it's had on other titles, the, um, the legacy that it's produced. So I think that the, the chapters in the, the first and second sections, the narrative and the player experience chapters are going to be more comprehensible and more useful to people who already have some familiarity with the franchise. Yeah. We're entering the final round now, so this is where I'd like to ask my guests for a little meta-reflection. What aspects and ideas would you have loved to include in your uh, volume that did not make the cut, actually? And secondly, and I'm really excited to ask that one, uh, where do you see digital game studies or digital game research as a research field in general at the moment? So to speak to your first question, I think what I would have liked to have seen that didn't happen is broader representation of the compilation of Final Fantasy VII, um, or even more consideration of its um, you know position in the in the series as a whole. Um, you know, Craig's chapter looks at the the series as a whole. I know that um, Sam Stinson's chapter also looks, I think, in relation to Final Fantasy IV, but. Um, because we did end up with such an emphasis on the, you know, as you put it earlier, like the, the, the real world implications of the game. I think that, um, you know, some of the, the richness of the, the transmediality of Final Fantasy VII didn't come through the way that I would have liked it to. Um, you know, I talk about Advent Children, the film, and I talk about the short story collection on the way to a smile and a few other people bring up Advent Children I think one or two people referenced Crisis Core, the the PSP prequel that was just re-released on modern consoles. Uh, but in general, it's very, very tightly focused on the original game and maybe some comparison to Final Fantasy VII Remake. So I think that the Final Fantasy VII, from my understanding, and for better or worse, is one of the first titles 
to have so much transmedia presence. Um, and it was organic. The uh, game released in 1997. And then I think Advent Children came out something like 2005. Um, and then suddenly they were producing prequels that were on handheld and mobile. Um, and now I think, you know, they're going to have one of their most profitable series ever in the, the remake trilogy. Um, but the, um, the way that it developed was because people were interested in the game and it was successful. Whereas to, you know, stay within the same franchise, final fantasy 15 was intended as a transmedia experience. And most people found the game to be unsatisfying because so many elements of the world building, the lore, the story were locked behind, um, you know, an anime and a feature film and uh, you know, alternate endings in a novel from canceled DLC and so I think that, you know, it's, it's role in creating this transmedia culture was, is something that we could have attended to more. Um, but I don't regret it because I think that staying more tightly focused on the original game was the more appropriate thing for, you know, what, what we wanted to produce, but I would have liked to have seen more of that. Um, as for the second part, I don't know that I can give a simple answer. Um, game studies is such a uniquely interdisciplinary field, um, and its focus is so constantly evolving. Um, you know, video games is a commercial creative beast. So I think for my part, um, what I am drawn to and what I would like to see more of is increased attention to the circumstances of video game production. Um, the last few years have not been short of controversies pertaining to things like misogyny and problematic work culture. Um, and that's only, you know, what gets reported. Um, you know, as I mentioned, my doctoral institution was really invested in the intersection of literature and social justice. And that means not only looking for themes in the cultural artifacts that people produce, um, it also means thinking about how we can help realize a more just world. Um, so if we're looking to, you know, games to highlight uh, or to provide escape from or sometimes even highlight and explore um, the things that um, we could identify as social problems, I think we also need to address the disconnect between, you know, the lived experience of those creators and the content they create. Um, so I think for me, um, I am drawn to the the works that are to the the current criticism that attends to the production of video games more than I am uh, anything else. Uh, yeah, I think um, there's a lot of work coming from the uh, journalistic side, right? Guys like Jason Schreier. I mean, this is a pretty German discourse, but uh, from time to time you see popping up right here because uh, German, the, let's say, um, culturally interested players they always complain why don't we have a german version of jason schreier <laughs> who's who's following up on these clues um jason we've taken a lot of your time um what are you working on now and of course what will you be playing next so i'll start and i'll answer the second part first i kind of already answered it because it's such a such a huge undertaking um so I've started Final Fantasy XIV back in December. Um, you know, my daughter and I are playing through it. I do some content solo. Um, but I think that, you know, despite being fully spoiled about where the story is going and knowing the big picture, um, I would like to 
continue through. And I have a feeling that, you know, somewhere down the road after more work is done, I, I could see myself doing some some work with Final Fantasy XIV because it's just so narratively and thematically rich. Each of the expansions has a distinct flavor in terms of aesthetic and gameplay, but also in terms of thematic focus, you know, whether it's um, uh, anti-colonialism or existentialism, we're, we're going all over the place and, and I'm enjoying that quite a bit. Um, you know, in between, you know, as the semester here is winding down and my, my teaching load is starting to um, to lessen, I can see, you know, some of my free time after my daughter goes to bed, I need to need to play through God of War Ragnarok, which I purchased last fall, um, but never got to playing. Um, Tears of the Kingdom, the Zelda game is high on the list too, but that I'll probably play with, with, with Gwen, with my daughter, um, eventually. Um, so yeah, Final Fantasy 14 for now in the foreseeable future, maybe 16, uh, when it comes out in June. Um, as for research yesterday, I just turned in a chapter on the original Final Fantasy and the pseudo remake slash prequel Stranger of Paradise. Um, I referred to that earlier. Um, and I was looking at that through the lens of techno Gaianism which is a bright green environmentalist philosophy that uh, endorses the use of technology to remedy the costs incurred by technology. Um, And understandably, a lot of people are skeptical about whether or not technology can actually fix the problems of industrialism. Um, And so I found some, some really interesting things happening in Stranger of Paradise that spoke exactly to that. Um, I have a chapter in the works that uh, should be going out for peer review soon in a collection on the Horizon franchise um, and uh, looking at um, indigenous appropriation, cultural bias, and actually, again, techno And then my biggest project um, I've uh, been working on is a book-length study of uh, religion and Christianity in the Castlevania franchise. Uh, So looking at the original series, looking at the Lords of Shadow timeline, and looking at uh, the Netflix series. I think what's what's most interesting to me there is the really sort of transcultural nature of Castlevania as a franchise, because you have a lot of classic European horror movie or horror book characters that have been adapted into American and international films, which have in turn been turned into tropes by a Japanese video game company, which were exported out to a European uh, developer for the reboot series. And then finally, an American-English collaboration for the Netflix uh, series. So this this idea that um, so many variations and so many um, adaptations of uh, a set of themes and images um, that have more and less relevance uh, with regards to uh, Christianity and Christian iconography. Um, So that's kind of a passion project. It's like the one that I probably have the hardest time putting through a a social justice lens, but, you know, I've been active in Castlevania communities online since I was in high school. Um, And at least with American audiences, I've always been interested in how much the reception seems to be driven by how how Christian or how not Christian the games and the, and the show are. So that that um, that engagement kind of led me to this project, and that's a manuscript that's currently in the works. 
And that sounds like a great project indeed. Um, Jason, I want to uh, thank you for your be for being on the show today, talking to me, and I really enjoyed it. So take care and goodbye. Thank you. Goodbye, everybody. So, dear listeners, I hope you liked this episode. If you are an author and or an editor in the field of digital game studies yourself and want to talk about your latest publication, please do not hesitate to contact me under rudolf.indust at googlemail.com. Alternatively, please send me a direct message on social media. You will find me under Rudolf Indust almost everywhere. See you in a bit.